Yeah, it took so long to get a national theatre when you think about it. And um, the reason we're starting to talk about it is that it's been celebrating this week 60 years yeah. of the National Theatre. Yeah. And that's 60 years since Olivier was in the Old Vic and it was under the banner of the National Theatre. Yeah, and National Theatre. Laurence Olivier running it. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's an amazing thing. When you, I mean, it took so long to get one and yet it's such a sort of treasure. Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of the people that pushed it, I was reading recently about Granville Barker. So Harley Granville Barker, who was an actor and producer and theorist and critic and, I mean, primarily an actor, um, who was working at the Royal Court at the beginning of the 20th century, along with a, a few other people, started the campaign for a national theatre. Actually, what then happened was the the initial effect was more repertory companies right actually it was it, it was the need for company and the need for people to make uh more regular work uh, to encourage the work of new writers and but also to do away with the edwardian star system and and that really the the opposite of that is a company yeah where yeah. In which everybody takes turns to play the larger or smaller parts and so it is literally about that company making work and and i think and then, the, and then, because then the repertory system became more established before the National Theatre came about, right. it then became really like a sort of mecca of of a system that had already been established, but through the people that were pushing just, for it through the writing of pamphlets and campaigning, and and then the pushing for the uh, 1949 National Theatre Act, which was George Bernard Shaw, and I think initially. I don't know, you might know more about this. I don't know. I, I think somebody called William Archer maybe. Yeah, there is working. a William Archer does something. He I was writing a lot of pamphlets around the same time as Granville Barker, but it it took decades. Yeah. We thought we'd talk this week on the episode of What's the Actress Said to the Critic with me, the critic Sarah Crompton. And me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. Um, we thought we'd talk about the start of the National Theatre because they have been celebrating 60 years. And oddly... Yeah. They've done brilliant things of uh, like um, making a lot of free tickets available to people. Yeah. But it's been a slightly muted celebration. I feel I feel I want to be like Ralph Richardson and let off a lot of rockets with the National Theatre because it is such a brilliant thing in yeah. English culture and has really transformed the theatrical landscape yeah. simply by the by being there for you know for lots and lots of different reasons. But I feel it's been I don't know I do feel it's been a bit kind of all over. Well, not all over the place of celebration, but perhaps not as big as I would have liked it. Well, I don't know. I think that it's hard, isn't it? Because there have been so many celebrations in the last couple of years with various things. And because of what's happened with the royal family and it's a royal institution, yeah. there was always a big thing with the Jubilee and then with the coronation and da-da-da. Um, and I think also, you know, like a lot of big you know, creative arts buildings at the moment, it's still in recovery. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and, and um, you know, whilst I think some of the stuff that, you know, they've made in the last couple of years and continue to plan and advertise, I think is so exciting. And the amount of work that's in the West End at the moment that's come out of the National is it's just great. I mean, it's it's a, it's galvanising and, and, and amazing to live in the same city as that, yeah, really. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, yeah. But and, I, and, it, and it is so interesting because I always think the thing about the National Theatre, as you say, it took decades and decades to get one. 
Yeah. And then um, what's always fascinated me is that you read any diary of any of the artistic directors of the National Theatre and yeah. whatever their personality, whether it's, you know, um, Olivier or Peter Hall or Richard Eyre or Trevor Nunn or um, Nicholas Heitner or I expect Rufus Norris when he comes to write it, whatever yeah. their personality, whatever kind of person they are, the National Theatre nearly drives them to distraction because it's such a sort of big, unwieldy thing that um, is both glorious and under constant attack. Whatever yeah. you do with it, I suspect, yeah, yeah, yeah. it will always be under attack um, because it is the most obvious outpost, uh, beacon of you know, what theatre is doing, what theatre means in this country and therefore of kind of what our culture means to a large extent. And maybe also, I suppose, the sort of diverse views about subsidy. You know, there's such a there's such strain on everybody's coffers yeah. at the moment and but particularly large, you know, arts institutions. And, and if they have survived, if they've been lucky enough to survive the pandemic, it's, you know, they, everybody's just rebuilding their safety nets you know we're not back to where we were um and i think you know the the three big royal institutions the you know the opera house and royal ballet only the royal shakespeare company four so are they the four main royal yeah, base yes. subsidized yeah. you know that they, they are under scrutiny because they are you know are, like unlike many many institutions in this country or theatrical companies they have subsidy yeah. And so you can see where it comes from. Um, and they never think they've quite got enough subsidy ever. But, you know, and and also, they never have, really. I mean, no. if you compare them with, if you compare any of those institutions with the German institutions yeah. or the French institutions, um, the, the, the kind of, they haven't got enough money. I, I interviewed Alexander Zeldin recently and he is opening his play at the National Theatre this very evening, The Confessions. Yeah. And he was saying that, you know, in France, it is possible for a lot of people in the arts to make money. Yeah. And in England, it simply isn't. No. And that is, you know, indisputably now. Yeah. Well, and always has been true to some extent. Yeah. And in that context, I do always think that National Theatre... Under attack, though it has been, has been a kind of really good deed and, and um, you know, a magnificent institution for yes. carrying the torch for British theatre since it, its very beginning. But it's also, it's an impossible ask of, of any building company person that you you exist on a pedestal, but also you are, it is designed by ideology and position to welcome and encourage and support new writing yep. um to develop new writing develop ideas from scratch you know and and of course that's why the studio was set up and everything else but there is enormous pressure to create a quality of work which is sort of almost impossible if you're literally training the next generation yeah. You know, by virtue, you know, that is your job. Yeah. And you also know. and also the twin job, because it, it's that. so it always it always falls between stools in a sense, the national, because it, it, it's meant to promote and encourage talent. So yeah. writing talent, acting talent and so on. But it's also meant to be the repertory house for the country yeah. at some level. Yeah. So yeah. To, to preserve the best of theatre of the past. Yeah. And I think it is um a, a strangely demanding hybrid role and yet 
I find, you know, as a, somebody who loves theatre, that when I think about theatre, so many of my happiest memories are bound up with the National Theatre. Absolutely. And it, it's it's a strange thing because I had this idea for this podcast that we would um, choose our five favourite shows, which we might have an attempt at doing. Yeah. But it's almost impossible. When I started to look through the list of things that have been on, I love so much yeah. that's been there and of kind of an extraordinary wide variety of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it is, it's part, and it makes me think of all kinds of things in my life, you know, yeah. in the way that theatre going can. So you remember certain shows because the people you went with, the people you saw, the way they made you feel, yes. what, you know, what your life was ha- doing at that time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And all of that feels to me very sort of richly bound in that curious yeah. institution but also the, the, the prism i think the national theater is a, is a great prism in ways that it, uh, it has shone light on um talent you know and or that umbrella term uh, for things coming from europe things coming from you know continents further yeah. away uh new musical styles new writing styles new staging styles and you know and that 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 experimentation and support is second to none. Yeah. You know, I mean, of course, those places exist around the world, but it is ours. That's ours. Yeah. And the number of directors I didn't know existed, you know, because they were in Germany or America or Africa or wherever, you know, that suddenly you think, oh, my God, how interesting. And you go along. And then people who've known about this company for years, and I always feel like I'm the last to know, but actually, <laughs> by the time it gets to the national stage... You know that that for them is a, is as an important punctuation in their growth because yeah. you sort of you're suddenly somewhere where you you know you the world can see you and 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 it it's so important for that and and we I can't I think we're so used to it we're slightly complacent yeah about I think it. we take it slightly for granted and I, I I like the way that every artistic director has slightly had their own style yeah, yeah. so uh, I I mean I w- wouldn't characterize them all but you know Rufus Norris who's the current artistic director who is about to leave and so yeah. at the end of his contract yeah, yeah and he's off and so there's kind of fevered speculation about who might succeed him but one of the things he's done that I think is really brilliant apart from actually just keeping it all going through the pandemic yes um is that he's worked really hard with the regional theatres in the UK actually and brought a lot of work and used the subsidy that the national gets to create work out in the regions and then to bring work in yeah and I think that's been a real triumph and it's you know a lot of um kind of amazing things have come from that yeah yeah and I think it you know and Peter Richard Eyre brought a lot of European work over yeah for, and I feel I saw a lot of things and like you say musicals you know you tend to think of the National Theatre being this kind of really sort of serious you know um serious plays where you watch the kind of great classics of the past and the new yeah, plays yeah. of the future but also, some of my best musical experiences have been there as yeah. well. Sunday in the Park with George. You know, I think that was my first big Sondheim of really yeah. thinking, wow, this is extraordinary. Well, the first thing I ever saw where I thought I wanted to be on stage rather than in the audience was the famous Guys and Dolls with Bob Hoskins and um, Julian oh, wow, McKenzie. Yeah. And, you know, which again, you know, it, I've, I've heard from lots of people was a huge landmark production for for you know my generation to go longer oh my god yeah. how is that even possible yeah um and even connections you think about the educational programs yes. that they set up i 
um, my sister-in-law is a is a teacher's performance uh, BTEC um, in the Midlands, and and it's a huge thing for her that you know a number of times she's had young companies that have come and been part of the connection season. So again, as you know. In terms of Rufus's reach yeah. and previous artistic directors' reach, it's it you you can't underestimate that effect. You know we we are very London centric, um, but I think it's really important and changes lives. And uh, you know practitioners that grow up in the Midlands or Scotland or Wales or whatever will always cite that moment when a touring production came. You know Dan Evans talked about growing up in Ca- uh, Cardiff and how important those touring productions in his childhood were and yeah. of course now he's running the RSC with Tamara yeah. Harvey and you know yeah. that's it it's the practitioners I, of tomorrow yeah and it has really been that and also I do think I, I'm very struck by uh, the NT in cinemas and the yeah. NT at home yeah which are ways of seeing plays that are not quite the same as being in the theatre but you know, NT in cinemas is extraordinary because it is an event and yeah. it puts the very best of um, British theatre onto stages, and it's not only their own productions. No, it's all the best. Yeah, opera, ballet, productions, right? And and it's and it's an event. You know, yeah. it is fun to go. And I I know I've got a lot of friends who live in places that aren't particularly well served by live theatre, and for them it's just kind of a lifeline of yeah. seeing really good stuff and feeling connected. Yes. And I I I mean I really love the National Theatre Unit when people say, you know. I, I, I've always said three things about it in all the jobs I've ever worked in as an editor and as a reviewer. One is that if you if you get the bug at the National, you you continue to have it. You know, yeah. I, I started queuing for student seats when I was a student, so that's a very long time ago. And I do feel that, you know, it laid its riches in yeah. front of me. I also think that every artistic director, I remember every time an artistic director starts, the press, my my colleagues tend to say oh they're having a terrible run and it's not nearly as good as the last artistic director and inevitably they eventually have kind of you look at their their time there and they've had this rich run of form yeah and it might not be all the time yeah um and the and the third thing is that they they are just like the lightning rod for as you say for everybody's worry about subsidy and yet, really, everybody should stop worrying about subsidy because it has ensured this country has a kind of incredibly rich TV and film industry as yeah. well as a rich theatrical tradition. That yeah. All those people who came out, you know, Michael Gambon famously, um, you know, started as a spear carrier for Olivier yes. and ended up delighting children as Dumbledore. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. so it's, it's an incredibly sort of big and important reach of, um, yeah, I do love it. I just love it. I always feel happy, really, yes. when I go. It's really interesting. I've been reading a lot about that early company recently, um, just to do with a, with a, a project. But it, I think that his legacy was so extraordinary, is Olivier's legacy. And, you know, and I, I think by the time he was the artistic director of the National Theatre, he was already a sort of superhuman hero for quite a lot of the generation coming up after him you know and but that also that played out 
you know, he didn't disappoint. Yeah. He was a great company leader and he wanted to argue. I think in a way that we're not very good at in this country. It's much more of a European sensibility. The idea of being so passionate about something that you get angry about it. Anger yeah. is seen to be such a negative thing. But actually, you're sort of... If you, if you can be with like-minded people and use that as one level to your language, it can be quite useful. I don't mean that to let myself off the hook with my own Irish temper, but I just think that, I think that you know, there is... Um, I love the idea that that first generation were wrangling, yeah. wrangling with what it meant yeah. and what they wanted it to stand for and the sort of work that it should be making. And Kenneth Tynan was... Really bloody hard on yeah, those early really, performances yeah. and horrible. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean horrible. That. Not in a conducive, you know, supportive way always, but it came from a sort of just, you know, they were they were the tastemakers. Yeah, you know, and and the, the the life force that it took to literally bring it out of the yeah. ground and put that brutalist structure on the South Bank. Yeah, you know, it it was it was it took lives yeah it did and there was a kind of huge passion behind it at every level I mean actually you know in terms of the brutalist structure I I remember once meeting Dennis Lasden who's the architect yeah and he was so protective of it and and, um when Nicholas Heitner slightly altered the structure yeah uh, to make it very successfully actually it has to be said more open yeah to the South Bank and therefore more of a part of the South Bank so that people would feel welcomed in um Lasden was kind of grumpy away because he was so protective of his building he loved it so much yeah and actually it does stand well I think as an example of the modernist architecture of that time I think it still feels like a building of genius yeah and when you see it sitting there you know compared with a lot of the modern architecture in London at the moment which is all kind of glass towers and and kind of just not thought about at some levels, just kind of flung up. I think like, you could see what Lasden was doing with the, the way it opens up onto the South Bank. Yes. And, um, and, and, and the concrete balconies. And I, one of my favourite early stories of, I, I think I've said this before, of one of my favourite early stories of the National is, is when, because the building work took so long, like all building work in everybody's life. Yeah. And everything went wrong. And then there were strikes and all kinds of yes, things going yes. But they ended up doing a performance of, Albert Finney was doing... Coriolanus, I think, and right. and they did the because there was nowhere else to rehearse it. Yeah, they ended up doing um, the rehearsals actually on those balconies that sit over the Thames, and passersby did indeed join in. Oh, really? <laughs> with Albert Finney and his Coriolanus, and there was this kind of uh, real sense of kind of an event of something happening. Yes, on the South Bank, and I I think that has really. Has really stayed, and, and I still. I mean, I'm really excited about. I am going to the confessions tonight, and I am really excited. I'm always excited to see what will be there. But they've always employed people that have maximised that sort of the activity around the building and opening it up. And um, you know, they used to have the brilliant watch this space uh, performances in the summer, and now there's the Riverside stuff the Riverside that goes are brilliant. on. Yeah. And and uh, when the shed was up, when they were redoing, making the Cottesloe into the Dorfman. You know, and I think the the glazed front and having the bars and certainly when I was last performing there, to be able to come out, because it used to be we'd go upstairs to the bar, but you come out and you meet everybody outside yeah. and you sit on the tables. And and I do think there's a sort of, it's that wonderful building in uh, Berlin, is it the Potsdamer Platz, where 
they took the old, um, was it the King's Palace? And they basically turned it inside out. So that right. they got they, they glazed the living room. Right. I feel like that's what Nick Heitner did. He yeah. sort of glazed the living room so you could look in, look at the, the you know, the, you know, by having the paint room open to the public yes. and all of that. I love that. It's lovely that. It's yeah. literally access. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think that was Nick's dream. And then putting all the pink lights all over it and the sort of the, the more plants and stuff that he, 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 took the out the inside and put it on the outside a yeah. bit more and I think yeah. that was the twist that actually helped it has really helped it up. it softened it a bit yeah it has it has I think the great thing and I know that it wasn't necessarily financially viable to repeat but there were um Joe did a great season there which was the loft season in 2002 I think where they took they found spaces all over the building um, and in fact, there's a restaurant, I think, on one of the mezzanine levels that he performed uh, Shadow of a Boy, which wow. play that Erica Wyman directed. I can't remember who wrote it. But anyway, but they, they did little performances everywhere. And I think if anybody ever wanted to do that again, the space can take yeah. it. And that's what's so exciting yeah. about it. Yeah, that's what's actually that's really interesting because the other place I've just been tangent. Um, I've just come back from um, Aviva Studios, which has opened. Um, what we used to be called the Factory International Space in Manchester, which oh, is wow. going to be a permanent performance space. And it's huge. I mean, it's absolutely massive. And it's got a hall and a warehouse and, and both are big. Yeah. But one of the interesting things they did to open up the building, and they have done very successfully, um, is getting people to perform in all spaces. So they, you know, they're performing, they're doing this um, uh, a version of the matrix called free your mind in the hall and the and the warehouse but they've also in the run-up to that done performances in the loos and in the halls and oh, in the, wow. and and it has really worked to people feeling that this building that's gone up in the middle of manchester is part of manchester and part of the the ecology and life of manchester and i i, I think that's always a really nice thing when you yeah. get that sense of people feeling that they they can just wander in and out and i yes. do think the national now you know it's people do just go in for a coffee or a, a tea or to use the wi-fi but it, yeah, it does yeah. feel like a building that is essentially part of life yeah and yeah. not something separate and scary and that you can't walk in and I I think that has been a really successful yes development that has come since 1963 so what are you are you going to tell me I'm going to try some of mine so one okay. of mine is one of yours so I, I did fail miserably really with trying to do this because okay. I, I just had too many but but I would count in my top 10 2010 and after the dance oh. and Terence Rattigan which was partly because I think it was the first time I was conscious of you on a stage. I'm not saying it's the first time I saw you on a stage, but I, I certainly thought, who's that person? And I thought you were utterly wonderful. Thank and you. And I, th I thought the play was amazing. Yeah, I mean, so it had always been, in, a, in as far as I'd been a, um, a stud, a scholar of Rattigan at all, it was always the play that I sort of imagined wasn't very good because yeah, yeah. He, it didn't have a very long run. He and it hid was, it very much. He hid it. Yeah. And yet it was so revelatory and so magical. And Benedict Cumberbatch was in it and I loved his performance. And I think Adrian Scarborough, who actually I had noticed before and he yeah. was amazing. I mean, everybody in it um, 
just seems so wonderful. And I think you sometimes have nights in the theatre where you just feel that everything's sort of gleaming and that when you look back in your memory, for, for there's a sense of just, of kind of being surrounded in light. And I, I really yeah. did feel that about After the Dance. Oh, wow. And I presume it was as lovely to perform it because it felt like a revelation. Yeah, it was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary thing to do and I didn't know it at all. I hadn't at that point come across Rattigan. I don't... When did I do... No, I mean, you know, he'd sort of come up. I don't think I'd seen much at that point, but it was um, it was a play that various colleagues then later admitted to me that they had tried to produce. Right. Um, and I have heard that actually again recently. It was, but people knew about it. It was like the universe suddenly decided it was time. And for whatever reason, there were delays or it didn't happen. And then suddenly the National made this happen and I think it was a homage to an anniversary of Ratkin but I can't yes, remember was, what I think, yeah. um, but Thea Sharrock um, w- who again I had auditioned for and our paths had crossed but I didn't really know her before this time so it was a complete surprise to me and I think that was the element of the entire journey that we all felt everybody was surprised Nick Heiner was surprised he said he'd never really liked Rattigan I hope that's all right to say with no disrespect to, to Nick at all I mean I just think you know you well, have good people. on him for putting it on actually oh, no, he said you know before that he'd sort of had mixed feelings about him but actually I think you know which was lovely that that production helped to change his mind yeah. or felt that he required further investigation or revisiting yeah you know i think it must be hard there are just so many playwrights yeah. and as the artistic director you're like well where the hell do you start what do what am i responsible for reintroducing yes. this audience to um and perhaps ratican didn't sit high on that list but because of this anniversary because of the um, and Hildegard, uh, Hildegard Beckler's design, yeah. which again, you know, I, I've been in the Littleton a number of times, but that was a particularly beautiful mm. set. But it just, it, who knows why things work? It is. work. I, I don't know. It was just, it's like a crossing of ley lines. Yeah. And it's the most relaxed. I don't know if I've said this before. It was the most relaxed I've ever been before a show opening. Yeah. And I said, and Theo came to my dressing room before the first preview, and and I said, I'm scared. I'm so relaxed. And she said, Don't think about it. It's yeah. good. Just don't think about it. Don't question it. Just do. Just put one foot in front of the other. Because yeah. yeah. you you expect to feel like you're going to vomit, you know. <laughs> but so the idea of being so completely chilled, you're like, Hang on, have I it missed had something? That feeling, it had that feeling of a, a a performance and a production that was sort of meant, and that. You know, Radican had hidden it because he felt it was the wrong time for it, didn't he? I think he'd had such acclaim with French Without Tears. And then I think it went on the London stage. So After the Dance was the second big show that he put out. And and there was such expectation of his second show. And it opened, I think, 38? Yes, it opens just before the war. Yeah, and and so the audiences were nervous about coming into the West End. And so it wasn't deemed to be as successful in terms of audience numbers. And he felt like that was it. You know, he was a one-trick pony and he sort of rather hid it from view. Yeah, Um, I mean, and then he went on to write extraordinary things. But when later in life, when he was, um, you know, 
established and people were putting together collections of his work, he purposefully kept After the Dance out because he thought of it as it's really interesting, a bit of a bum it? note, which I, I just, yeah. I, I think that's, I mean, I think it's so interesting. And I think one of the um, qualities is, is about the national is that biz- ability to find places that have been slightly forgotten. Yeah. Do you have? I know what my list roughly is. I can sort of do a rough list of things I've adored. I, do you have a list of things that you? It's really tough. It's really tough. And there are things that I wish I'd seen. Things that I felt that I have seen because I've heard so much about over the years. I did a platform uh, with Alex Jennings where we were we were li- told to list five that we loved seeing and five that we wish we had right. seen okay. and in my head they've become this big blob <laughs> and I just like hang on did I see that or did I imagine that I'd seen that <laughs> I know too that I, I wish I'd seen I wish I'd seen um the betrayal I wish I've oh, seen right, the okay. first night of betrayal which oh, is Penelope yeah. Walton Daniel Massey and Michael Gamble <gasps> I really wish that was 1978 yeah, yeah. I think and I wish I'd seen Ian Charlson's Hamlet which oh, I didn't yeah, see yeah, and yeah. um I I I, I, that breaks my heart that I didn't see it because I've seen a lot of Hamlets and I loved him. Yeah. And um, I would have liked to have seen that. So they're my two I, I wish I had seen and didn't. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to have seen Long Day's Journey in Tonight. With and Olivier. Lo- yeah. yeah. And that actually the first production of uh, The Front Page. Oh, yeah. Um, that, did Blakemore direct? I've read so much yes, about that production. My, yes. That was supposed to be extraordinary. But in terms of my, what I've seen, I mean, weirdly, the things that I remember... I mean, there's two Marion Elliots, which right. is Warhorse, this is Marion Elliot and Tom Morris. Anyway, Warhorse and yeah. all the brilliant people that were involved in that, inclu- including Finn Caldwell, who we've had on uh, the podcast. Amazing people involved. Friend of the pod. So Warhorse, I think, what it felt like it was changing the way we yeah. made work in this country, that it had changed the perimeters. And so, again, you see things sometimes and you think, Okay, that's so. I went the first time I ever saw Complicity at the Young Vic. I remember thinking, "Okay, this is this is like nothing. all bets are off." Yeah, nothing will be the same again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Warhorse felt like that. But I also remember tingling from like head to toe watching Marin Elliott's St. Joan with Anne oh, Duff. Wow. Yeah, you see, that's when I wish I'd seen. And I didn't and, see and that. that felt again just like. Something extraordinary had just happened. Mm. But then I've seen things with the kids, like the Elephantom, uh, like Mr. Gum and the Dancing Bear. Yeah. Um, that I just loved. You know, I, I, Mr. Gum and the Dancing Bear. My my amazing, lovely friend Tom Giles was in, and the brilliant Richard Kant was in. So we went ostensibly to see friends. But it was one of those things that it felt like, like rock and roll, <laughs> you know, that it was so bonkers and and anarchic, but beautiful, beautiful design and funny. Yeah. I mean, really funny. I mean, when I when I watch stuff, I don't know if you feel like this, because there is so much analysis to what we do. You know, either as a as a writer or a performer or whatever, there's an analytical eye yeah. on what you're watching. Yes, and so I very rarely roar with laughter, it, but when I when I but when I do, it's so. I mean, I laugh and I love it, and I I just never want to be anywhere else, um, unless the kids are ill and I ought to be at home. But but <laughs> but, but, but actually, uh, you know the. 
when you roar with laughter, I just I remember to this day lines from uh, Mr. Gum and the Dancing right. Bear because it was just beautiful. Um, yeah, I say I, I, I yeah. No, yeah. I, well, I think that's true, and I think that's so. Warhorse would definitely be one of yeah. mine, partly again because I, as I say, I think one of the things about going to theatre and that kind of, um, and actually again, that gets lost when you're having to analyse all the time, is the kind of visceral sense of who you went with. Yeah, and yeah. Warhorse was exactly the right age because it was on for such a long time and kept coming back for both my sons to go to. Yes. and so we went, we 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 went separately, but they yeah. both saw it, and so I saw it twice, and. I found it, you know, like you said, just changing the form. First time really I'd seen puppets used in that way. Unbelievably moving. Yeah. And and as a visceral experience of being there with the children and, and loving the sense of introducing them to something that I really loved. Yeah. Other things I would have, I would have Carousel, oh. which was Nicholas Heitner and a difficult musical, you know, what was called a difficult musical. Um, the last piece of... Uh, choreography that Kenneth Macmillan ever did was right. the ballet he did for Carousel. He was incredibly, well, I didn't really know he was ill. I mean, yeah. he died kind of very suddenly. And right. but but he was making that while he was reviving Myling in I think nineteen ninety three and. That was and and it was heightness production, and it used the revolve and it's a bit where you say that everything was just beautiful. It was yeah, one of yeah. those shows that you could utterly surrender to and just feel you, um, you suddenly saw something great being revealed. Yeah, yeah. And I feel this enormous fondness for all the actors who were in that production. Yes. Whenever I see them in anything else, I always think, oh yes, Mr. Snow, or you yes, know, Clive yes. Rowe was Mr. Snow, and Joanna Riding, and I always feel this sense of warmth towards them from that production. Yeah, I think when the when the Olivier comes into its own, it's it's you you do feel like you're witnessing something epic, and like it's sort of changing plates under the earth yeah. or something. Because it's yeah. I remember uh, Wind in the Willows when they did Wind yes. in the Willows, um, his Dark Materials. Uh, Tom Stoppard's Coast of Utopia, you know, those th those epic, epic nights that you just feel like have changed your organs in some way, having sat through them. And I, But then recently, you know, um, I took the kids to a small island and Artie to this day says, you know, because he is a wriggle fest, you know, whatever I take him yeah. to, he can't sit still. But small island, he's, he just says, is literally the best thing he's ever seen. And then uh, last week we went to see The Father and the Assassin. Right. Which, again, he did not move. It was just beautiful, beautiful theatre and, and, and just great storytelling. Yeah. You know, to take epic stories, you know, based on real life that covers decades and, and, and sort of push them into this concise beautiful thing and and it's companies at that at their best and yes. i know you know there are a few places now that can employ a company that size that can tell an epic tale an epic story and you do always it is always actors that you encounter and sometimes for the first time so i would add also to my list i would add uh, david hare and howard brenton's pravda right partly because um it seemed just you know as a journalist it seemed like one of the most brilliant dissections of the cruelty and madness and megalomania yeah, yeah. of the newspaper industry and partly because again performances it had had um, 
uh, Anthony Hopkins, who right. I hadn't seen. I just sort of missed him. And I think he hadn't been on stage for a very long time when he came back to yeah. uh, Pravda. And he did this kind of grotesque um, Lombard, Lambert LaRue, I think yes, it yes. was called. And, it, and, and I remember that again, viscerally, you know, quite profound sense of this presence on the stage and um I just thought that was so wonderful yeah um and I really loved it so that would be one of my that would be another of mine and also um also actually with Bill Nye um Arcadia the first night of Arcadia (gasps) I remember um partly because I was really patronizing and said to my husband he wouldn't understand it and he understood it because I was worried that I don't know why I was worried, yeah, really. Yeah. And he understood it so well that he was standing in the interval talking to the whole um, uh, assembled gathering about theoretical physics while I oh, was right. sort of still trying to understand the basis <laughs> of the play. Um, and partly just because it was, again, a magical ensemble. Tom Stoppard, new play, thrilling, thrilling, thrilling. Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, and tingly. Yeah, I wish I'd seen that. I ended up doing it the next time he did it. And there was a you know, they're very much in the company, people who had seen that production and people who hadn't. And I wish I had. And in fact, I remember then years later doing a bit of a and a with Harriet Walter, who played Lady Croom yeah. the first time and I played it the next time. And and, and it was really interesting, you know, that, that it, I, I mean, I, I loved, loved, loved Tom Stoppard's plays. I always have. I love the way he writes. Um, and in fact, Jumpers, which I had studied for A-Level, I then saw there with Simon Russell Beale, um, and I wish I'd seen the, the original yeah. production of Jumpers with Michael Horden and, and Diana, Diana Rigg. Yes. I mean, that's another one I wish I'd seen. And just all those epic, because you have that size of stage as well. I remember uh, Katie Mitchell's The Seagull and those extraordinary, uh, the big sort of glazed sort of uh, walls and you could see all the action yeah. behind. So, you know, the, to have the space, it's the space and the size of things and the richness of you know, uh, an entire sub, entire building supporting a production that can be as lavish and epic as that. And that's the, that's the, the treasure of it, really, yeah. I think. That, that, you know, and on the few times I've been part of it, it's just, it's everything you imagine as a young actor thinking, please, 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 one day, can I, please? Um, and, the, and then when you get, it's a privilege to be there and I don't mean that in any wanky sense I mean it's literally because you're surrounded by people who just love what they do they are happy practitioners and that's just glorious really yeah the other thing it does well I think is small things and and courage I suppose it's courage I think that I guess because of the subsidy and because of it's the fact it's got three theatres in which to produce it yeah. can take risk and so if I was coming back relatively up to date though this is longer ago than I thought um John, which was by Annie Baker. Well, they did two Annie Bakers. So they did The Flick, which was amazing, which is just set in a movie house where people are sweeping up the popcorn and it goes on for three hours. And you went in and you thought, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? And (laughs) nothing's going to happen. I'm going to be bored witless. And some people were bored witless. But some people like me thought it was the most kind of magical slice of life and um, discussion of the relationship between... Uh, life and celluloid and storytelling but then John was even more astonishing because it just you didn't at any point know which way it was going to turn yeah and uh, the thing I remember most is that um June Watson again an actor I love and um uh, you know very much in my heart um 
played a, a, a blind woman. Right. And I can't quite remember because it's eight years ago, but she she gave a speech in an interval. Wow. So she came on and explained her presence in the interval, which most people missed. And it was quite deliberate. And they'd been, all the ushers had been told not to warn anybody to stay in. Oh, really? That you were either there and you got it or you didn't get it. Yes, yes. And because I'm a sad sack who doesn't go out in the intervals, I was sitting <laughs> reading my program. I was there. And it was just sort of kind of, yeah. So that's another of my magical yeah, I, I think the, the interval is a very unexplored space <laughs> do me two more two more things from the national and I'll do two more oh god we'll stop uh, oh oh god my brain I mean it's hard isn't it because I I mean am I allowed to say things that I did yeah I mean, totally. I this is a podcast from both sides of the theatre well in terms so of the, in terms of experience you see, I, and I don't mean this like, oh, God, I'm so marvellous. What I mean is, is that it was such an extraordinary experience to be there at that time. And after the dance was one of it, one of them, absolutely. The other one was the Voise Inheritance. Yeah. That was, again, it wasn't the first time the National had done it, but we were there with Peter Gill and um, we were doing it in the Littleton. And it, again, it was, it was the first time I'd ever been part of an epic style national show where you feel part of this sort of glorious machine that we're all creating something together like it's all we've we've all been handed a wand and then like you all have to make the spell at exactly the same moment and it and and I loved Peter Gill and I loved that play it made me feel complete fall completely in love with Harley Granville Barker then you know then did Waste at the Almeida a few years after that and I and you know it's full circle really in terms of how I feel about Harley Granville Barker being one of the first people yeah. who suggested that we should have a national theatre at all you know it makes sense when you do his plays because yeah. they're entirely about company entirely about this can't be produced off the back of one star turn mm. this is in, entirely made by a collaborative everybody on the same page experience for an audience, you know, for whom this is entirely created, you know, and that he purposefully put massive furniture in the middle of set so that nobody could stand in the middle. Yeah. And it forces actors to collaborate with furniture with, to collaborate with the space. It was all entirely ideological and, and it, it, it made me sort of fall in love with the idea of what I was attempting to do, which is to make a life as an actor. And and, and then you realise you're part of this sort of millennia-long journey of yeah. people devoting their entire life to the possibility of something, yeah. you know, unknown. That's fascinating and, and, and sort of fantastic because that is, so the other quality of the national, and when I think about it, the quality that binds all the things I've loved most there together is there is a kind of expansiveness, even that the, the, the productions done in smaller spaces yeah, yeah, often yeah. have a, a kind of intellectual, um, which does sound very wanky, but a kind of... The, the, there's a kind of imaginative expansiveness yeah, in them, yeah. that they're always the best things there are always trying to communicate something quite big even if it's small yes. small in execution so for example just at the moment you know Roy Williams and Clint Dyer have come to the end 
or I think it's the end of of the Death of England set of plays. Yeah, and they're quite you know they they're not massive plays. They'd be monologues and duologue. Uh, the last one's a duologue, but the ideas contained within it are national, expansive, important, um, but also shared. You know, watching a play there and watching that play, the audience feels very much part of it. I I think there's a I know that the, the spaces of the national cause problems in terms sometimes of sound and that they're, they're big, but they also are shared spaces at some levels. And I feel that um, that perhaps, and that's really interesting, you know, bringing it round full circle and to a close, yes. it's, that is so interesting of the idea that that was what Granville Barker, you know, wanted it to be. Yeah, everything was about sort of, you know, I, I God, I'm not a professor of any of this, and I'm so dyslexic. I only ever dip in and out of stuff. But but I, it chimed on so many levels that I uh, I that I just I just love and and uh, and and a lot of, and it's about nothing is off limits, and that ultimately all comes down to a very human level. And I think that's what that's what the ethos of the company is: is that we that you create a community. A company is a small community, ultimately, and community is very leveling. And you take care of each other. You become there's a sort of weather front of your own, and and you know, and if that's your ethos, if that's your idea, if that's your ideal, that's why you know uh, Joe finds playing Gareth Southgate oh, yeah. in a in a play about football. It means that nothing is off limits. Yeah, and that's that's what nothing is off limits. Nothing should be theatrical or one should never assume that it would work or it doesn't work because ultimately it's it's the retelling of stories and therefore nothing is off limits and everybody should has the right and everybody has the right to watch and contribute as an audience member or act and contribute as part of a company or as part of a you know production company that create and 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 that's the ethos of the building yeah you know and that's why it's in the center of london it's not in any particular district or whatever, it's 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 right by a river, which means that it's a thoroughfare, yeah. which is that it's it's passing. You pass, you have the right. It belongs to you, and I think that's deliberate. It has yeah. to be deliberate on some level, you know, that it, it will put it right in the middle of our city, yeah. and that means that centrifugally everyone gets a chance for a bit. I think I think that's absolutely spot on, and and you know having. This weekend, gone to see Dear England again, now in the West End, yeah. still attracting huge audiences. And the kind of um, joy that's in the theatre yeah. of seeing, um, you know, loads of people who perhaps wouldn't normally have come to theatre coming to a play about uh, the English football team, which is also about England and which makes you laugh. I mean, I do think so. The other my final thing, I think is that's an almost perfect place to to leave um, uh, Hooray for the National Thing. Yeah. But I sometimes think the thing that gets lost about theatre is it can make you laugh. And when I again, a lot of my memories are of just rolling around with laughter at things like A Chorus of Disapproval, which yeah. was yes, Alan Aikborn and Bob Peck. One Man, Two Governors. And One I mean, Man, oh, Two Governors. We, yeah. yeah, you know, groundbreaking. Groundbreaking and funny and joyful. So and too many for one podcast. Really. Too many for one podcast. Maybe we'll come back to another. But um, 
yeah, just, yeah, let's just say hooray. Hooray. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on your 60th birthday. Yes. And we're very glad you're there. Happy birthday. It's a brilliant place to finish. And so that's goodbye from me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And me, Sarah Crompton, the critic.